Happy Memorial Day. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 24, please. We have uh, two weeks to go here, this week and next week, in our study of David. Brother Jack Spender from Waterbury will bring uh, David's final words to Solomon before he dies. Um, so this is actually kind of the, the last event uh, we're looking at where David does something and there's some repercussions <laughs> uh, and some response um, to that. This is uh, a great chapter to kind of sum up what we've been studying about David. I think everything kind of comes together in this chapter. The chapter is broken down into what I call three acts. Um, so we're going to kind of read them act by act. Instead of reading the whole chapter, we'll read an act, we'll talk about it, and then we'll go on to the next one, and we'll go to the third one. It'll help keep everything fresh uh, as we do that. So before we read, let us commit the time to the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, again, we are so very thankful uh, for this precious word. Um, it is the revelation of the heart of God. Uh, There's more than just stories about people through history, uh, but we see people like us, and we see who you are in your righteousness and mercy, and God, we see the redemption that is available to everyone throughout this entire book. So we thank you for the opportunity it is to study it as a body, not just alone, but as a group of believers who have chosen to commit our lives to this book. So Father, we ask that you would bless our hearts, that we would hear what you have to say to us today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1, and again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundredfold more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. So Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Eroyar, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi. They came to Dan, Jan, and around Sidon, Jaan. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. First thing we need to clear up, because it is often confused, um, so I just want to make sure that we have a clear understanding. If you have a new King James, you have the only Bible that transposes this incorrectly. Um, This is what I read. So, In the first verse, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them. So it's it's transposed to imply that it's the Lord who's moving David to do this. But if we turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which is the other account of this incident, a few chapters over to the right. First Chronicles 21, in verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So the word that's really used here is adversary. If you, had, if you could read Hebrew, it would say the adversary. And the word used there in Hebrew is actually Satan. So how do we put these two things together to understand what's happening? The anger of the Lord is aroused against Israel. It doesn't exactly say what he's angry about. But if we've been studying this book, it's not hard to make some intelligent estimates or guesstimates if you want. The people have frequently rejected God. 
And even just recently, they tried to follow, some of them followed Absalom when he tried a coup over the kingdom. They, they rejected God constantly. And so what God is doing now, he's going to allow the actual nature and heart of David to just take its course. God does that in our lives today. He will allow, he, he kind of lifts his protection for a moment here from David, I think, and says, I'm going to let happen, I'm going to let nature take its course. And what comes about through David is basically pride. David wants to know how many people he has in his army. How big is my kingdom, which is really based on the army? Who can I take? Who can I take? And, and God is not mentioned at all. He says that I may know the number of the people. So God allows David's prideful heart to come in and sin. Now, David had every opportunity not to do this. This was David's choice. He's influenced, but like us, we have the opportunity to say, no, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. I know I'm tempted to do that, but I'm not going to do that. But David's prideful heart leads him into falling for this temptation. Just so we have a, a, the correct attitude about God, turn to James chapter 1, please. I think you know this very well, um, but I want to look at it and not just say it. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So God does not cause David to do this. But he does allow David to do it. Because God foresees what's going to happen. He needs to judge the nation because they have been sinning and rejecting God and his word. And he's going to use the king to bring it about. So David's sin, where he numbers the army, he's looking to see, what else can I do? You know, there's many times we've looked at David's life when he's in, he inquires of the Lord. Lord, should I do this? Should I go to fight here? This has come about. All these things have come to me. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's not happening here. This is all about David and the pride of a king. But whose army is it really? It's the army of God. This is not David's army. David wants to take credit for something that's not his. The army of Israel is the army of God. What they have is by God's hand. The victories they have had are by God's hand. Whether there's one of them or a million of them, it's by God's hand. So for David to desire the knowledge of this for his purposes, for his pride, to consider maybe taking more land, Maybe go against go a war against other people. Maybe he just wants to make sure he has enough in case someone comes at them. That's not faith. You know, there's there's wisdom in, in knowing what you have, but when it comes to the provision of God, he's looking for faith. He has shown throughout the history of Israel, whatever you need for victory, I will provide. That's not where David's heart is at this point. Maybe after all David's been through. He's, he's a little weakened. His son, own son tried to kill him and take his kingdom. He's been chased by Saul all those years. Maybe he's just worn down and he's just not thinking right. There's a lot of reasons why we could try and guess why David is in this place. But why is counting the people a sin? Turn to Exodus chapter 30, please.
Exodus 30, beginning in verse 11. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When you take the census of the children of Israel for their number, ah, so God actually does allow for a census to be taken, but when? Then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone among them who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 giras. Of course, you all know what a gira is. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone included among those who are numbered from 20 years old and above shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. And you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So coming out of the Exodus, instituting the priesthood and the sanctuary, God says, do a census, but it's to collect a tax to support the tabernacle and the work of the priests. Stuff costs money to run. David's not doing that here. This is all about David. There's nothing that David wants to give back to God when he numbers these people. So God's predetermined judgment, going back to Moses, is going to be a plague. Because the people have not been doing what they've been instructed and guided to do. They've been rebelling against God. Now another interesting thing happens here with David is Joab. Joab, who is the commander of the army. If there's any guy in the kingdom who's going to go, yeah, let's count him up, then we can go to war. It should be Joab. Joab loves to fight. Joab's life is about fighting. He's the commander of the army. The more the merrier. Joab can't have enough. And even Joab says, David, this is wrong. David, this is wrong. You know. Why do you desire this thing? But the king's word prevails. It is so important in our lives that we seek counsel and we heed counsel. We seek counsel and we heed counsel. There are people in our lives who are here to go do No, you shouldn't do that. There are people in our lives that we can go, is this, what do you think? But more importantly, we have the word of God to do that. David had the word. He should have known this was wrong. So the first place we actually should seek counsel for every decision is the actual word of God. Turn with me to Psalm 73, please. Psalm 73 will begin in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. You will guide me with your counsel. If there's anything that you can count on in any area for any knowledge, for any wisdom, for any counsel that you know will always be right, it is the Word of God. It is good for me, he says in verse 28, it is good for me to draw near to God. Sometimes the Word of God tells us we shouldn't do things. And we don't want to hear it. We want to ignore it. We want to disagree with it. We want to do what we want to do. But there's only one purpose for it. It's our benefit. 
There is no agenda to the word of God. It is solely for our benefit, our blessing. Once that we don't do something stupid and have to bear the repercussions of it, but also so that our relationship with God doesn't get broken. It's going to keep us on that straight path that we need. Obviously, you know, through the Proverbs and the Psalms, you can find counsel, counsel, counsel throughout it consistently. Uh, how important it is. Turn with me to Job 12. Job, again, speaking of the wisdom and the counsel that comes from God. Job 12, verse 13. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, then dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away plundered and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. The authority of the word of God, when it comes to his counsel, cannot be challenged. There is no justifiable reason to not turn to God's word for counsel, except for one. You want to do what you want to do. You don't want to know what God's word says. And we all do it. Believe me, I'm not standing here being pious. There are times when you go, I should probably look at God's word, but it might tell me I shouldn't do this. So I'm not going to. But his word and the authority that it holds, nothing can stand up to the word of God. So we need to go there. Turn with me to Job 29 also. This is great. My, my Bible subtitles this chapter 29, Job Remembers His Happy Past. Oh that, as, uh, oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. Job remembers through this hard, difficult time, and he longs for that time, and he realizes what he had. He really hasn't lost it. He's just lost perspective. By the counsel of God, he walked through darkness in his life. The friendly counsel of God was over his tent, over his home. Everything about his life, his family, the way he did everything was under the counsel of God. That is where we need to be. But sometimes it's hard to discern certain situations and we're looking in the word and we're still not quite sure. We can't find the answer we're looking for. We want to find the answer, but sometimes we're just not. And that's when God puts other people in our lives. Turn to Proverbs Chapter 1, please. Proverbs chapter 1. Talking about wisdom. Wisdom wisdom is so important to God. And he defines the wise man here. A wise man will hear and increase in learning And a man of understanding will attain or acquire wise counsel. So we should 
seek counsel from others. We should. But are you going to listen to it? That's the hard part. Sometimes people who love us dearly and want nothing but our best tell us something we don't want to hear, and we tend to go, I see your point. It's interesting. Thanks. I'll give it some thought, and then we'll go do off what we wanted to do anyway. You know, God put that person in your life to bring that message to you, to keep you from making a mistake. And there's nothing wrong with two or three. In the, in the uh, wise counsel, he's, he's not just one. It's a, always a good idea to get more than one. There's nothing wrong with that. But it should be counsel that comes from the word. If you want true, wise counsel, it should come from the word, even from others. Turn to Proverbs 8, please. Um, Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be of an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Seek wise counsel. It is something to be cherished. Riches have nothing. Profits have nothing compared to wisdom. So when God brings wisdom and wise counsel to you, heed it. What is about to happen because of David's transgression is going to affect many people. You know, a comparative story, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. If you know this story, the people come to him and say, man, if you can lift the burden off our necks, we will follow you wherever we go, wherever you go. But your father put such an oppression on us, man, it's killing us. And, and Rehoboam goes to the elders that were his father's counselors, and they say, yeah, they're right. You really should heed them. And then he turns to his buddies. What do you guys think? Oh, pff, don't listen to them, man. Make them work harder. And he has a tremendous rebellion against him as an awful king because of this decision. He did not seek the wise counsel. It was right there before him. The kingdom would have been blessed. He would have been blessed, but he rejected it. So let us not confuse counsel with affirmation. Sometimes we want to poke around and go, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You think what I think. You're the wise one. Thank you very much. Wrong. Now, I'm not saying that wise counsel has to disagree with what you're thinking. But if you're getting multiple people saying one thing, those are probably the ones you should listen to, especially if there's plurality. That's where you're going to find consistency, and you know that it's probably from God. So let's turn back to Second Samuel 24. Moving on to Act 2. Beginning in verse 10, 2 Samuel 24. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, 
David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague among, upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. This is not the first time David has sinned. But because he is king, and what he has done has been against God's commandment, especially regarding the census and the tax, the whole nation is now affected. When he did, uh, for example, the sin with Bathsheba, the direct punishment and righteous judgment from God came immediately upon him, and God took that child. Because of the magnitude of this sin and what David has done, the entire nation has to be done. But for a moment... Opposite of what he did earlier, David has some moment of wisdom and clarity. And he says, I will throw myself on the hand of God, not upon man. God is still righteous. If God is not righteous, then God is not God. So there is repercussions and judgment from God. And it is hard to look at this and say, this is the merciful God you talk about. He took 70,000 people. That was the object of David's pride. Those men. And this is what God promised he would do if a census was taken without the tax. What we're going to find when we finish this chapter, though, as hard as that is to accept, when all is said and done, David and Israel are drawn back to God. What David does is he throws himself wholly and completely on the mercy of God, which is the only thing we can do. Not once does David say, God, I have sinned, but, you know, Joab could have stopped me. You know, God, I know I sinned, but you gave me this great army that did so many things, so what did you think I was going to do? Repentance means you, you, you take responsibility for your actions. And that's what God is looking for when people come before him and repent and seek mercy. Dave, David's not going to put anything by God by not taking responsibility. God knows exactly what happened. He saw the whole thing. He knew what was going to happen. So to try and fool God and not take responsibility for it is ridiculous. God is going to bring discipline when there is sin. But we need to know, because he loves us, this is going to draw the people, and when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see something, I think, pretty cool, where God brings David when this is all said and done. The interesting thing about the three options, the first two probably would have spared David. A king usually doesn't go hungry in a famine. He's the one guy who probably has plenty of food while people are starving to death. He's got an army that he knows will fight for him. He's got his mighty men. So to have enemies pursue him probably isn't going to affect David. 
But a plague, David is as susceptible as anyone else. So we have to give David credit here and recognize and learn from this attitude and this behavior. When you fall before the mercy of God, fall upon the mercy of God. Trust him. He's going to be righteous. There may be discipline. There's another message here too. David is king of Israel and his sin affects the nation of Israel. Leadership has an effect on where God has put it. And believe me, we know that. When we agonize over every decision, everything we pray about here, and things we study and decisions we try and make, we know there are repercussions upon the whole body when the elders meet and discuss these things. We are, we are not um, unaware that there are consequences to the things that we have to decide and do. So we cherish your prayers in those things because sometimes they're not the easy things. They're hard. But I think we can pass this on to parents as well. You know, parents, the decisions you make affect your entire household. Your entire household. God has put an authority You have to take severely the responsibility that comes with the decisions we make. They're going to affect our children. They're going to affect our home. We should not take these things lightly. That's why counsel is so important. I don't know everything. I ask other people. I'd be a fool if I didn't. But anyway... On that happy note, David is able to trust in God wholly and completely in this instance because he knows his God intimately. He can, without fear, throw himself upon the mercy of God and say, not man, God only, because he knows who he's trusting. He does not hesitate. The moment he realizes what he's done, he goes right on his knees before God and says, God, I have sinned. When God gives him the three options, he doesn't think about it, he doesn't ponder it, he doesn't need to uh, search it. There's only one clear answer. I will trust God. Because he knows his God. As much as God hates sin, God cherishes accountability and repentance. He knows we're going to sin and we're going to make mistakes. As hard as we try and desire to live righteously and holy, He knows we are going to make mistakes and bad judgments. But the heart that throws itself at the feet of God and says, God, please have mercy. I made a mistake. That's the one that God intimately dwells with. As Jesus said, I came for the sick not the healthy. Why are you hanging with those people? Because I came for the sick. The more open and repentant and honest we are with God, the deeper our relationship gets. So in every instance we can say, I will trust in my God. David has a lifetime of miracles from God. So when he needs to trust God, He doesn't have to hesitate. So as goes the king, so goes the people. There's an interesting uh, balance to this, though. You know, we wonder why the anger of the Lord was aroused again against Israel. But these are a people who God took out of bondage and said, I will be your God. Follow me. I'll be fire at night, cloud by day. I will lead you. I will protect you. I'll provide for you. And they said, we want a king. They got what happens when you want a king. They got what's coming when you say, 
No, God, I'm going to trust that man. I want to follow that man, not you. We have a different king. We have a king who rules with a scepter of righteousness. And as the king goes, so the people go. Our king will not cause us to stumble and fall. Our king lifts us up. Our king intercedes on our behalf day and night. He's not going to make a mistake like David and cause us to have to bear punishment and judgment because of his mistake. Our king is righteous and good. And if we trust him as our king, trust his word, trust his counsel, our life is one of blessing. Not judgment. Let us trust wholly and completely in our God and our Lord, the King. Because He is the only good King. The only good King. Let's move on to Act 3. And we will read in the book, 18 to 25. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Araunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Araunah went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Araunah has given to the king. And Araunah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Araunah, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt sacrifice, burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Where Araunah is, is a place called Mount Moriah. Turn me to Genesis 22, please. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, and the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. 
So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 2, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, the land of Moriah. Where is David right now? He's on Mount Moriah. God has brought him back to the place where God first established the message of sacrifice. This is not an insignificant thing. I'm going to tell you why. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 3, please. Second Chronicles 3, verse 1. Now, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Through this whole thing, God has brought David to the place where the temple is going to be built, on Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac. And he's going to take it and he's going to start right here and build an altar on the threshing floor of Arauna. The threshing floor, I had to kind of look this up because I'm not a farmer. Threshing floor is when after they pick all the, the wheat, they lay it all out and they just trample it and tear it apart so they can separate the grain from the chaff. And then they take the pitchforks and they throw it up in the air and it blows away. And all that's left is the grain. The husk is sacrificed to release the grain. God is telling David, in this place, my house of worship is built upon the foundation of sacrifice. Everything about the temple that we are going to learn and know about when Solomon builds it and we see everything that's in the temple, it all points to one thing. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a manual, burdensome process for this to go through, for this threshing floor. It takes time. And it's a lot of work. So it's not an insignificant symbol of sacrifice. What David does, he offers a burnt offering and a peace offering. If you recall, when we studied the five major offerings in Leviticus, the burnt offering signifies Jesus' complete and whole atonement by his sacrifice. The offering that is put on the altar, the animal, is completely consumed and burned up. There's nothing left. And it signifies that the atonement is accepted and it's complete. But unlike bulls and rams, which can never take away the sins of man, Jesus Christ died on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. So David brings a burnt offering. And David brings a peace offering. If you remember the peace offering, it sounds like I'm going to offer something so we have peace, but it's not. It's a celebration of the peace. It's a person coming and saying, God, I'm going to put this on the altar. This part of the animal is going to burn up. And that's my offering. That's your part. And this part, I'm going to sit here and eat. We are having a fellowship meal, me and God. That is the peace offering. I am celebrating with God the fact that we have peace. How can I have peace with God? Because there was an atonement made on my behalf that he accepted. And we get to meet every Sunday and enjoy these things to remember the burnt offering that went up 
and to share in the bread and the cup and say, hallelujah, we have peace with God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get to enjoy that. And David does that here. David sets up an altar on the threshing floor, which is a picture of something being sacrificed to set something else free, on the very place where Abraham offered up his son Isaac, and God said, no, I will provide the sacrifice. And David comes here now. But there's something that's just as important for us. David says in verse 24, Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Just because God has taken care of the atoning sacrifice on our behalf doesn't mean there's nothing that's a sacrifice on our part when we come together to worship Him. There is still a sacrifice required on our part, and there are many and numerous. You can look at them in a lot of different ways in your life, how you bring them. But you cannot take it flippantly and lightheartedly and go, there has to be a cost to me. When I get up early on Sunday morning and don't lay in bed, it's a cost to me. I gave up something. When I don't choose other things because worshiping my God comes first, it's a sacrifice to me. When I have to cry out, say, my God, thank you for saving me. I'm sacrificing my pride that I have not done anything and it's all God. When I stand up and open my mouth and say, Dear God, thank you for saving me. I'm sacrificing my fear. I'm putting aside what other people might think and focusing on my God. I'm overcoming fear that I am standing up and opening my mouth towards God. I have to make sacrifices throughout my week to spend time with God so that when I come here, my basket is full and I bring my offering of worship to God. That took time and sacrifice during the week. The one that's probably most sensitive, nobody ever likes to talk about in church, is the money. Giving of your money is a sacrifice. God has given you and you give back to him. God needs to come first. When God established all these things, it was about the first fruits. When you bring your first fruits before the altar of God. Our offering should not be what's left over. God should come first. I encourage you, do not let God get the leftover. God should come first. Make a commitment to give to God faithfully and then trust Him. We do not preach here the tithe. Um, that's an Old Testament principle. It's 10% of your income. You are more than welcome to give more than that. But it's a good starting point to make a dedicated commitment to God. Whatever you think, but don't let God be the leftover. Well, this came up and that came up and I had to go out to eat and then, uh, you know, we went here so I guess I only got like 10 bucks or 20 bucks left for God this week. Everything for God comes out first, gets put aside. Then life can have what's rest, what's left. God comes first. I personally... And I encourage you to take this challenge. And I've decided by studying this, this is what I want to do. Notice I didn't say I'm going to do. It's what I want to do. Is I'm going to meditate on this verse as close to every day as I can for the next year. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. 
That's how I want to start my day. Let's close. Our Lord and God, what a beautiful, humbling picture this is. You brought David to the place where the temple would be established, where your nation could come and offer their burnt sacrifices, their peace offerings, their grain offerings, their sin offerings. Because it's the place where sacrifice was founded. And we stand upon the foundation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave his life when we had nothing to give. He purchased us. So Lord, may our hearts be convicted not to bring anything that's free or didn't cost us anything to you. But may we appreciate what you have given for us and given back to you an offering that does cost, that requires sacrifice. Because in that we will remember what you have done for us. But above all else, Father, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, for the redemption that we have. Thank you that his sacrifice was pleasing and that it fully met your requirement for a sacrifice. That we can come before you now, free from condemnation, at peace with our God. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. And have a blessed Memorial Day. Remember those who gave so much. Thank you.